hello, hello, and welcome back to your favorite podcast, the IBS Freedom Podcast. I'm joined by the oh-so-lovely, oh-so-pregnant, currently as of the recording of this episode, Amy Hollenkamp, R.D. Hello. Hello, everybody. And we are I'm excited, very pregnant. excited to bring to you a conversation about the pancreas, but specifically, yes. specifically, let's, let's frame this real quick, everybody. So the pancreas, little funny, chunky looking organ, kind of like tucked up under the edge of your left rib cage. And it is famous for two things, primarily. It does a lot more, but two things major that they do are pancreases. Pan- Hold on. What is the plural of pancreas? I think it's just pancreas. Is it? Pancreases? Pancreae? It must be I pancreas. Like pan- I think it is. It's like moose. I don't know, though. I don't know. I, like, we're getting into the deep philosophical questions right out the get-go on this episode. I kind of like pancreae, honestly. I kind of like pancreae. I'm gonna... But I don't know if that's... Would anybody here. but us have an occasion to talk about plural pancreases, though? See, I now I'm think thinking so. pancreases is, is correct. Anyway, our collective pancreas do two primary things that they are most famous for. A, uh, that is that is the organ that makes insulin for you. And when mm-hmm. the pancreas is no longer to make insulin, we call that type 1 diabetes. And that's when you would go on exogenous insulin or insulin from an outside source, and you would be injecting it or using that as a medication. That is the endocrine function of the pancreas. So E-N-D-O, endocrine. And that is more akin to like thyroid and thyroid hormone and how your ovaries, if you have them, make estrogen or how your testes, if you have them, make testosterone. Like it's, it's an organ making a hormone and dumping the hormone into the bloodstream. That's an endocrine gland. The pancreas does that, and it also has an exocrine function where it makes pancreatic enzymes, digestive enzymes, and it dumps that, not into the bloodstream, that would be bad, but directly into your GI system. So it goes through a series of ducts, kind of hooks up with the bile duct from the liver and the gallbladder, and then all of that bile and all of that pancreatic juice comes out the same little tube and goes into the upper part of the small intestine, and it helps you digest your food. So in this episode, we're not going to be talking about the insulin endocrine function of this gland. We're going to be talking about the pancreatic enzyme function, the exocrine function of the pancreas, and specifically what can happen when you don't make enough pancreatic juice or enzymes, and that's called pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. So now that I I just wanted to like get that out of the way right at the beginning of the episode. So Amy, like let's let's lead the way a little bit with you. Um, A you, you want to give people a sense of, like, maybe any symptoms that might come about from this, if any, that you can pin directly on this, um, any experiences that you've had working with people. Um, I have worked with some people with PEI, or pa- pancreatic excretion insufficiency, before. Um, I, I get a sense. I don't think it's exceptionally common, but it's not uncommon either. Like, right. you know, like... Um, if you have SIBO, for example, there's a much higher likelihood that you have like candida overgrowth or low stomach acid or some of the other things that we've talked about on this podcast versus PEI. But I have worked with a 
good chunk of people who have had it. So it's it's not a rare condition by any stretch of the imagination either. Uh, but I'm curious what what uh what you would like to share at this point. Right. Well, and I think it's such a spectrum too. So like to get a EPI diagnosis, you're going to have to have pretty low enzyme function. Whereas I think there's a lot of people in the SIBO IBS space that might have suboptimal levels that wouldn't necessarily be characterized as having EPI or diagnosed with EPI because their levels aren't that low. So I do think that, you know, Typically, if someone has suboptimal levels, again, I, I think about the discussion we we had with like Kaylee with metabolism and things like that. Like, do you have enough pro even protein to make en- enzymes? Do you have enough calories to make yeah. enzymes? Is your body too stressed um, doing other things to make enzymes? So I think yeah. that there's a subset of people that have maybe pancre like suboptimal pancreatic enzymes. Yeah where it's it's not a big enough issue to be characterized as EPI, um, but they might have some suboptimal levels. And usually working on other things will help get yeah. that more figured out. Um, so again, I, I just wanted to, to point that out because um, I think yeah. that that's more of probably the larger chunk of what we see is people maybe having some pancreatic... Um, some suboptimal elastase or something like that, which is kind of a marker of pancreatic function, but it's not low enough necessarily to be diagnosed as EPI. So I think that that's probably a bigger subgroup. But then again, I've certainly worked with some people with outright EPI. Um, And I I will say too, I, I feel like the pancreas is like the reptile of the gut like just how it looks like it looks kind of like you know how it's all bubble like it kind of looks reptilian to me yeah i think i use the word chunky to describe it like chunky bumpy lumpy yeah it's like lumpy it looks like scaly to me in the textbooks it's also damn near impossible to dissect out like in really dissection classes it's really hard to tell the pancreas apart from adipose tissue aka fat right and like i don't really remember ever getting a clean dissection on a pancreas and i've uh fun fact about me i've dissected a lot of bodies in the cadaver labs and i like yeah i don't know if i've ever gotten a clean dissection on a pancreas to tell you the truth because it looks like fat Um, right but yeah and and i i want to go back to what you pointed out though real quick before we stray from it um the spectrum idea is really important here because like i said i was saying this is not a super common condition I think like the overt outright diagnosis, right. I would say is, it's not uncommon, but it's not super common either. Um, yes, I think that there are people who are in that middle ground. So like, the test for this would be pancreatic elastase, which is a stool test. And usually what will happen is like, if your number is below 200, then you get diagnosed with pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. And the doctors say, oh my gosh, you need enzymes. And then away you go. Um, LabCorp and Quest seem like they will measure uh, this enzyme up until about the five six hundred range, and then after that point, they're like, "Ah, it's super high. We don't even know." Right. Um, and I've seen, you know, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of functional doctors, and I've even seen like the GI Map company, for example. They've said like optimal is five hundred or more, and I'm like, maybe I don't. I I never really know with functional medicine if something is really like 
rooted in science and like clinical experience, or if it's just like my profession being super supplement happy and being like, everybody needs enzymes. Oh my God, this is great. Um, But I feel like at the bare minimum, you don't want to be anywhere close to 200. Like if 200 is where conventional medicine acknowledges it and says, hey man, that's weird. You probably want to be at the bare, bare minimum from like a functional perspective. You probably want to be at least about 300, if not 400. I think like using a range, a functional range of 500 to diagnose people and give them enzymes, I think might be a little bit too stringent for me, uh, considering like we can't even really assess the number beyond that point, mm, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Cause like the labs just won't do it. But I do think again, like the diet, the full blown diagnosis is going to be below 200, like an insufficiency kind of issue where it's not super in your face, but it's also not great either. That's probably between like two and 300, maybe two to 400. And then anybody above like, you know, 400, I think is probably pretty okay. Or right. at least, at least you probably have bigger fish to fry. Right is the better way to look at it. Um, but, but yeah, I, it just like so many other things in the conventional space, the, the diagnosis is pretty straightforward, but then the treatment, it's like, ah, just take this prescription enzyme and away you go. And like, you know, from the doctor's perspective, it's like, okay, we treated it. We're done. And at least in my experience, that is not typically, like the be all end all in that person's journey. Like they probably have reasons for developing PEI to begin with. Right. And you need to like look at the root causes, which I know is, is something we've said in every single episode of this podcast. Um, but that's where I think kind of the, the buck stops a lot of the time is like, like, yay, we diagnosed you. Here's a medicine. Okay. You're cool. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Well, and I think again, that especially with digestive capacity issues, like, it's like, hmm, like, what's driving low stomach acid or what's driving the pancreatic, what's driving the pancreas to just not produce enough enzymes? Like, that yeah. should be a question that's asked. Um, I did want to mention, too, and I feel like we've discussed this before, just, like, um, throwing it out there. I I have definitely seen, too, that the GI map tends to, tends toward a lower elastase level. Yes. Um, compared to LabCorp, I've seen it even be like double on a LabCorp request, um, compared to the GI map at times. So again, it it makes me wonder a little bit about the accuracy of that marker on the test. Um, so feel the same way. And I was I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to mention that at some point. Yeah, and again, like I, I would say too. Typically, again, even if you got a GI map and your level was, again, in the 200s or 300s or something like that, might not hurt to try some pancreatic enzymes and just see how you do, you know, to try some enzymes and see if that helps some symptoms. Yeah. Um, that could be something that you do. Um, and again, but I would say, you know, it's been, I've seen weird inconsistencies with the elastase marker. It makes me wonder a little bit if the GI map's kind of trying to bite off a little bit more yeah. than it can chew with one sample. Yeah. I mean, you're getting a ton of markers and so it could create weird anomalies in certain markers and again, the elastase has been a weird one. And then the calprotectin, I know we've talked about yeah. is also being a little bit weird and inconsistent when you retest. Both, 
both of those markers, calprotectin and elastase, you could you could order those through LabCorp request pretty easily. They're not right. god awful expensive. Um, and like if if you have the appropriate diagnosis codes, you could even get it covered by insurance. So I've now many many times I've gotten something back on a GI map, either elevated calprotectin or uh, decreased pancreatic enzymes. And I, I, as the clinician, go, okay, we need to verify if this is right or not. Mm, because, right. like, I remember I had somebody with a calprotectin in, like, like the 600 range, I think. And I was like, okay, like, if this is accurate, if LabCorp confirms that your calprotectin is that high, I need to do my due diligence to keep you safe. And we need to send you to your GI doctor and rule right. out Crohn's and colitis. Because this is like, this is high enough that we start becoming concerned about inflammatory bowel disease. And sure enough, I've had many different times where the GI map comes back with elevated calprotectin and then, oh, gosh, golly gee, lab form, totally normal or not even detected. And I've seen that also with with pancreatic enzymes. I, I, one of the more recent ones, maybe five, four or five months ago, had somebody come back with a GI map and her elastase on the GI map was like 49 Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, wow, do you have a pancreas at all? Right, That's right. wild. That is the lowest I've seen. So like kind of similar conversation. I said, look, I don't trust the accuracy of this test, but I also don't want to be a dodo bird and put you at risk. I want to keep you safe and I want to do my due diligence. I need you to go to your primary care and show her this result and ask her to run pancreatic elastase through LabCorp and then send me the results when they come back in and we can compare them. But we need to make sure that it's not really this low because if it is, we need to like have you get proper GI workup. And sure right. enough, LabCorp came back. It was a little bit suboptimal. I think it was in like the mid 200s. So it wasn't great, right. but it wasn't like, oh, your pancreas just evaporated one day kind of level, right? Right. And right. I've seen that with pancreatic elastase many times where the lab, the, the lab results from GI map make it look really grim or like really overt. And then we double check it with LabCorp and it's not nearly as bad as it looks like on the GI map. Now, again, I don't know, to be kind of sinister and like conspiracy theory sounding, the GI map is a functional test. Maybe they're in cahoots with supplement companies or maybe it's just like, some bias and they're like, ooh, if we make these lab results look worse than they actually are, maybe we could sell more supplements. I don't know. I realize that sounds crazy <laughs> to even insinuate that, but like it's really bizarre that that pattern keeps emerging. And like there's some other discrepancies I see with the microbiome part of that test that make me really not trust it. Recent did I tell you this? Recently, like two months ago, for whatever reason I had like a couple of people do GI maps all back to back for some reason, which is kind of atypical for me like four or five in a row all came back with a low but detectable level of giardia and these are people from all of different places in the country they didn't even right. live in the same state all different parts of the country and it was again it wasn't elevated but it was detected and you know for each each of these people the first person i was like all right we need to treat this the second person i was like oh that's fishy the third person, I'm like, okay, this is really freaking weird. And then, like, the fourth and fifth one came in. By the time we got to, like, the third sample in a row that had positive Giardia on it, like, low, low but detected right. levels, I was like, look, I don't believe this anymore. Right. 
but I don't want to give you anxiety because I'm ignoring something on your lab test and make you freak out. So let's have you do, I had to eat raw garlic for a couple days in a row because that has pretty good efficacy for Giardia. I was like, let's just cross our teeth and dot our eyes, have you eat some raw garlic for a few days, knock the stinker out if it is there. But between you and me, I don't really believe this test result. We're going to work on the other stuff a lot more in depth. Um, but anyway, that's my little anti-GI map talk for the day. That's your conspiracy corner of the of the podcast. Yes, but I, yes. Yeah, I, I know I had a client who actually had EPI diagnosed by, by a GI doc. So she was one of the EPI okay. clients that I worked with. And so, again, we weren't shocked when she did the GI map in her, I think it showed like her elastase was like 80 or something. And then um, she basically, her doctor was just like, I'm going to recheck these because like, I'm not yeah. sure about this test. Like her doctor, I think it was just her PCP, mm-hmm. but her calprotectin was like 800. So like we were like, on the oh. GI map? On the GI map. Yeah. Her calprotectin was super high. And so I was like, oh, like, we need to, like, figure this out right away. But her yeah. doctor rechecked it. Granted, it was still, like, a little high. It was, like, maybe 120. She okay. had some uh, more, like, proctitis issues that we think might have been elevating it a bit. But, like, I mean, these samples were taken pretty close together. Like, it, it's yeah. just, it, like I said, I think it's just really strange. Like, there shouldn't be that big of a discrepancy. And the pink, the elastase was about double or more if i remember right um yeah. but yeah again like i've seen i've seen probably five cases like that where something's not aligning um it makes you good i think like with that test especially and to some degree other tests i tell right. people like take it with a big grain of salt we're gonna work out some stuff but like we're not gonna we're not gonna take it completely at face value like, I was just talking to a friend today on Marco Polo. So she got some hormone testing done with her functional doc a couple months ago. Her testosterone was like 400. It was weirdly high. Weird, okay. weird, weird. And she immediately panicked and like went into a full-blown like anxiety panic attack mode and was like, oh my God, do I have PCOS? Am I going to be infertile? Oh my God, I'm going to go into early menopause and all this stuff. And and the functional doctor was like, yeah, maybe you have PCOS. And she's like, maybe I have PCOS. Oh, my God. Right. It's like, right. stop it. <laughs> stop. Like, I know her medical history inside out by this point. I'm like, you don't have any symptoms of PCOS. None. Right. Right. Not a one. And he should know that. Like, you've never had an irregular period. You don't have, like, abnormally high amount of facial hair growth or, like, receding hair or, like, none of the symptoms. Is this is super atypical. What you do have, and she's known this for years, she has all the signs and symptoms of estrogen dominance. And other lab tests have confirmed that before. But it's like, you have estrogen dominance. You don't have PCOS. Those are two totally different things. And I I suggested to her, I was like, I don't know if I believe this. It was like ZRT or one of those functional salivary type tests. I was like, honestly, I don't really believe this is accurate. I think you should do a retest. Or you should completely disregard the testosterone thing. She's like, but what if I have like one hair here? And I'm like, stop. Like you don't have PCOS. She gets results back yesterday. New ones. Her testosterone is normal now. But now her estrogen is like through the roof, even though she's doing all the things to treat the estrogen dominance. And she's like, what do I do? It's gotten worse. But then she's like, but the testosterone is a win. And I'm like, 
not really. <laughs> like, right, right, right. like, I thought it was inaccurate from day one. I don't know if I'm going to chalk that up to a win necessarily. And I'm not going to freak out about your estrogen either because I don't know if I believe this test. Right. So, well, I don't know. It, like, it, it's such a good reminder to really prioritize like matching symptom in your case with whatever the test like if it doesn't match with some of these tests i'd much rather trust what's going on with you and how how you're presenting versus what these tests show because it's all a bit of a it's all a crapshoot pun intended a a bit not that you can't get some some information from it but like if something doesn't add up it probably doesn't add up um or again it might warrant more exploration again if something's high um to get it looked at by like more conventional labs just to confirm but yeah I i think it's a really good reminder just you know you have to sort of breathe and understand that the labs aren't everything Collect um, the data, but don't trust it explicitly. Right, like, right. Don't right. don't lose your mind because a test told you something. Um, and and that's hard to do. Like I think everybody likes data, right. and like especially heaven forbid if you're in the mode of not trusting yourself, not trusting your body. You know, beating yourself up because you feel like you did this to yourself in some way or like you freaked up your health or you didn't eat healthy enough. Like if there's that like self blame, not trusting myself, I kind of element to what's going on with your health, which I think is honestly super, super common for people. Right. Um, if that's going on, it can be that much more tempting to over rely on the objective testing because it feels like it's the objective truth. But again, right. like every, every, every lab and every practitioner, like, you're trusting the lab's ability to measure the thing. You're trusting the lab's ability to establish a reference range for the thing. You're trusting that practitioner's ability to interpret the data that they're seeing. You, you know, there's a lot of things that you're trusting when you're putting your faith in objective testing. And a lot of it is less rock solid than you would want to admit, typically. Right, so just, right. Like, it, it the, is what the it is. level of precision that is marketed is often not not the level of precision yeah. that's actually present. Um, well, and again, to again, pick I, on my profession again, tests don't guess. Like, right. okay, functional medicine, but what happens <laughs> when there's a test that's not validated and they're just throwing stuff out left or like another kind of easy example on the GI map, I kid you not, I don't know how many of these I've seen at this point. Every single GI map minus like two that I've ever seen has elevated bacillus. Mm-hmm. Now, is that a selection bias? Because the people who come to work with me happen to have dysbiosis and they all have the same flavor of dysbiosis? Or does it mean that that lab is either not measuring bacillus as accurately as they think they are, or they've established a reference range that is way too low and it's making everybody look elevated? I think it's one of those two. And maybe like a teeny right. bit of selection bias peppered in with it. But, you know, it's like, anyway, I don't want to make this all about lab testing necessarily. But the point here was with PEI, yes, the lab testing could point you in the direction and get you a diagnosis potentially. Um, if it's anything but LabCorp or Quest, I would consider verifying it and retesting it and mm-hmm. seeing seeing if it really lines up. 
And, you know, you could certainly start treating and taking pancreatic enzymes or digestive enzymes, whether you go the route of like over-the-counter supplement type enzymes or the prescription kind that you could get from your GI doctor. That's very individual. Um, I, for whatever reason, have tended to see the people more who tried the prescription enzymes and they either felt like it didn't help them or it made them feel worse. And then we end up treating it more holistically and maybe using like over-the-counter digestive enzymes. But there are probably a lot of people who get diagnosed with PEI, they go on the prescription enzymes, they feel great, and then they have no need to come to work with somebody like me. Um, But just know that like the prescription enzymes might not be appropriate for everybody with PEI. And likewise, the -the over-the-counter supplement type enzymes might not be appropriate for everybody with PEI. You really have to feel out what your body likes and what it doesn't like and what feels like it's most useful for you. Right. I will say with the with the typical meds like Creon, I mean, those can be really expensive as well. Um, so if you wanted to try those out, again, if your doctor wanted to try have you try them out too, like I've had some people where it's been like, you know, $1,000 or something per month for cre- creon's expensive um so I've, I've had some issues i think with that and again if your doctor can get you samples sometimes that's worth asking just to see if you if it's worth tr- like you know the amount of money that it might cost depending on your insurance um so again like some people do really great on creon um and some of the pharmaceutical um enzymes but you know if you wanted to try them i might request samples just to see if your insurance isn't gonna cover it um yeah it's a it's a rough one i've seen that in a in a few instances where it's like well i go ahead oh and and it's crazy because the -the over-the-counter digestive enzymes work reasonably well for a lot of people like maybe you have to do a higher dose like a quote-unquote normal person who's just taking enzymes, like, occasionally, maybe they'll take, like, one or two capsules. Maybe somebody with PEI could benefit from, like, three or four capsules. Right. But a bottle of digestive enzymes from a supplement manufacturer is probably going to work reasonably well for a lot of people. Again, just try it out and see what what happens. Right. Like, are they... Well, and even, I, I would say, too, if you go to, like, pancreatic enzyme reviews or anything on like amazon or something yeah. you scroll through through those reviews they're all like oh creon was too expensive so mm-hmm. i switched to this and it's working or i have pancreatic cancer yeah. and couldn't get creon which is like kind of crazy you know to me that you know the insurance would, all right wouldn't wouldn't cover uh creon if you had pancreatic cancer um so again like you, if you even scroll through like pancreatic enzyme reviews a lot of them are like people that have pancreatitis or, or um, you know, pancreatic cancer. People that have EPI that just again yeah. need a solution that's cheaper and easier for them to access. But um, yeah, I I think you're right. Um, you know, it might take a little bit of experimentation to figure out what, what's going to work best. But I will say, symptom wise, because I know we were like going there at some point. Mm-hmm. Um. I, typically, I would say there's a couple symptoms to look out for. I mean, again, a lot of them can be similar to like IBS or SIBO symptoms, like diarrhea and pain and bloating and gas and that kind of stuff. Um, 
one thing to pay attention to, and again, this could be linked to SIBO as well, would be something like like unexplained weight loss. Like you know you're getting enough in, but oh. you're still kind of not gaining weight. That could certainly be a byproduct of EPI um, because, again, you're just struggling to break down food. But again, make sure that you know that you're getting enough in because right, there's right. a lot of people who are like, I eat enough. And then we do tracking and they're totally not taking in enough calories. Right. So don't be don't be the person who's like, I know I'm eating enough protein or I know I'm eating enough whatever. It, just verify it. Like, right. we don't have any excuse anymore. We have free apps on right. our cell phone and on the computer. Like, you can figure out if you're eating enough for free. You don't need to pay right. us to do that. Like, do at least that much on your own. and get through that that much of it um but mm-hmm. yeah continue sorry i kind of interrupted you no yeah I, again I, th- I think weight loss is a is a big one for for people that you know tr- have true epi um to look out for but like i said and I, you reaffirmed I, again i think that making sure you're getting enough in is so critical first yeah. just so because a lot of people in the SIBO space or ibs space have weight loss but it's Maybe they're not eating enough because their symptoms mm-hmm. kind of are affecting yeah. their intake and the restrictions and all that stuff can just affect like losing weight or that kind of thing. But yeah, that's one. Well, Again, sometimes nutrient deficiencies too yeah. can be another indicator. Again, if you're not breaking things down properly, yeah. um, especially again I'm, I'm thinking sometimes like the fat soluble nutrients could be related to that. There could be other things too going on there. Um, but that could be an indicator. Um, having fattier stools again, could also be a bile gallbladder issue, but, um, you know, if you have a high steatocrit, yeah, if if you have a high steatocrit or fecal fat or something like that, um, you know, potentially ruling out pancreatic issues makes sense to me. But, um, again, a lot of the symptoms I think kind of run a little bit close to the IBS spectrum, but then there's yeah. kind of a little bit more nuancey stuff to look out for too. But those would be the biggies that, yeah. that I would I would say. Yeah, and I, I think that's about what I would have said. I think probably bloating is the most right. common out of those. Right. Um, and, and I'll throw out there too, like I worked with a guy with confirmed diagnosed EPI um, you know, he already got that diagnosed with a GI doctor. He tried the prescription grade enzymes. He didn't feel that they helped him at all. Um, and I forget what else he had on, if he had IBS or SIBO already diagnosed as well. But we we started working on microbiome stuff. And he had quite a lot of brain fog, fatigue. Um, his testosterone was a little bit low. And... You know, you could kind of look at that and go, oh, it's because of the EPI and the SIBO, right? Like, oh, you know, he has the brain fog because of the inflammation from the SIBO. And he has the fatigue because of the inflammation from the SIBO. But he was a good example where I had him do some tracking with chronometer for a couple days. Turned out he was way under eating and he did not realize it. And literally, like, the first thing I had him do after our first session together was just eat more. And right. he went home. He didn't He didn't add new foods in necessarily right away, but he started eating more of the foods that he could tolerate. 
And I think we got him on like some collagen peptide protein and maybe some like more hypoallergenic kind of protein sources as well. And even like two, three weeks later when we followed up, he said, oh, like I have so much more energy. I'm able to work out for the first time in years. And like my brain fog is lifting and I've gained, you know, a pound or two in the last couple of weeks because he started eating more. So it, you know, it's so tempting when we see these symptom patterns and, and contributing <laughs> yeah. it all to the thing that we think is the primary condition. Like, oh, I have X, Y, and Z because of SIBO. Or, oh, right. I have X, Y, and Z because of the EPI or the gastritis or the whatever. And it's like, those are assumptions and you could try to test the hypothesis, but you have to listen to the data, right? Like if you test the hypothesis and your hypothesis is rejected, don't keep going down that road. Like you've got to listen to the data at some point. And luckily he was very receptive to that. And he realized, oh, I've been way under eating for like two years and just eating more really, really helped him a lot. But I'll throw out there too. He was a good example where we had him try probably three, if not four different types of over-the-counter supplement type digestive enzymes. I think I had him try one from Apex Energetics, Designs for Health, Pure Encapsulations, and Enzyme Science, I think were the four that we tried. None of them really did much of anything for him. So we ended up, like, partway through working together, we ended up just bagging the digestive enzyme thing all together, and we're like, all right, look. But his numbers continue to improve. When Mm, we did stool testing, his pancreatic elastase continued to improve. We really just worked on, like, the microbiome stuff, making sure he was eating enough food and getting right. enough calories in. Um, maybe there's like one or two deficiencies, like, you know, vitamin D, vitamin A, maybe like a B vitamin, something like that that we worked on. Um, I don't even think we did a lot of antimicrobial work, if I remember correctly. And his symptoms were basically all resolved. He was feeling really, really good. And his EPI numbers, he had gone from pretty clear diagnosis of EPI, like down in like the 140 range, I think. And then the last time we had tested, I think he was getting close to the 400 range. And that was right. only after about six months that it had turned around to that degree. But for him, we actually ended up not using digestive enzymes because none of them seemed to make a huge difference for him. Right. But, and you, you lightly touched on this. You can have EPI for a number of reasons. Yes. Pancreatic cancer is one of them. Um, I think probably the two most common causes for our listeners, though, um, A, is that if you have digestive insufficiency or poor digestive digestion in general, remember that your pancreas and your gallbladder release their enzymes only when they are stimulated by the acidic bolus of food exiting mm-hmm. the stomach. Right. So if you don't have enough stomach acid, or if you haven't chewed your food enough, or if you're scarfing down a granola bar on the way to the next meeting, your stomach is not going to get acidified enough. And the bolus of food exiting your stomach is not going to be the proper pH to trigger that local response and that reflex and get the enzyme release from the pancreas and the gallbladder. So start higher up, like start with just the mindful eating, chewing your food, making sure you're taking your time to actually eat and enjoy your food and maybe supporting stomach acid. And we've got like episodes about that already. The other theory that I have with this is I think some people, well, let me rewind. I think that inflammation 
just broadly speaking, can probably cause EPI. And the way I've kind of rationalized it is no tissue in your body works quite right when you're inflamed, right? Mm -hmm. Like your brain doesn't work well when it's inflamed. Your, you know, your thyroid doesn't work well when it's inflamed. Your stomach doesn't work well when it's inflamed. If you have like a background ambient level of inflammation, either in your digestive tract or just systemically, which you would see with things like elevated C-reactive protein, homocysteine, glyce A, reverse T3, elevated ferritin, if there's some background level of inflammation, you're flaming out all of your body parts, including but not limited to your pancreas. So I think sometimes we see this like this guy where we treated everything but the pancreas, and yet the pancreas got better. I think it's like, as we treated the dysbiosis or the SIBO, whichever it was for him, and the nutritional inadequacies, and, you know, one or two nutrient deficiencies, whatever that might have been, as we treated all of that stuff, his ambient baseline level of inflammation started to come down. And then his tissues were able to function better, including, but again, not limited to, his pancreas working better. And then it was able to do its job and make the enzymes. So I think like, I don't like to say that inflammation is the cause because that's so like non-specific and obtuse feeling and like kind of out there. But honest to God, if you have inflammatory markers that are elevated, that could be an explanation for EPI. Um, And just thinking about things like anti-inflammatories or supporting your immune system or clearing other kind of infections or other dysbiosis could go a long way. I mean, heck, we've mentioned before, even just getting a single dental cleaning reduces C-reactive protein by about 25%. Maybe, maybe cleaning your funky teeth for the first time since the pandemic, maybe that would help with EPI. Like weird right. things have happened, people. So those are those are the two that I think are most common. Just inflammation in general, driving it, and like crabby digestion from the top going down. And by the time right. you get to the pancreas, your pancreas is not getting the memo that it needs to do its job. Right. I think both very, very good points. I think the only uh, other thing that kind of comes to mind, and this is maybe more of like a a more complex thing. I I haven't really seen this often, but um, sometimes gallstones can sort of like legitimately block the duct. So if you have gallbladder issues, there can, it can certainly lead to some pancreatic um, issues more, I think from like a structural standpoint, like the enzymes can't leave the pancreas, which can sometimes lead to pancreatitis I was going to say, like, I would think the person would get pancreatitis and be in quite a bit of pain if that was right, the case, though. Right. So that's like kind of the more extreme, I would say, complex. Yeah. But I think probably for our clients, you're right. I, and I, I would say, too, yeah. I like the scenario you used because it's like, okay, you kind of focus on other things yeah. and the EPI gets better. I also think like I've I've definitely seen that, but I've also seen where supporting with the enzymes actually is very helpful at reducing symptoms and bloating Mm -hmm. so that they can do the things that can help with inflammation and um, like again getting enough calories then might be challenging for some if they're not able to digest properly so yeah again i've definitely seen um 
people who are really responsive to enzymes and like what you said people that aren't really responsive to enzymes um i think definitely try them right exactly yeah i'm glad you spoke up because i didn't i don't want to sound like i'm poo-pooing the digestive enzymes because i'm not that's why again i had this guy try like three or four different types of over-the-counter enzymes before we finally gave up and said whatever um but the point is like don't don't continue down that path if none of the options right. are seeming to work. Um, I will right. throw and out I, there too. I think but. my point was just like, um, you can, I like that you described the different scenario of like, oh, maybe the enzymes weren't as helpful. Yeah. But I think again, like there's definitely a considerable number of people that I've seen where it's like their bloating goes down. Sometimes, too, again, like, it's interesting to know how much of the bloating is potentially due to digestive insufficiency versus the SIBO. Like, I think that's an interesting experiment, too. And I think it's an interesting mental experiment for the person as well to where, like, oh, when I take these enzymes, my bloating goes down 80%. So I need to work primarily on things that are going to help upregulate my digestive sufficiency like sometimes it can be a really good indicator of like what avenue makes the most sense to go down yeah at at this point in time um so i think you can get valuable data from that as well versus again some people might take enzymes and feel like uh that's it's not really a it's not really supporting my digestion or again like digestive even if they took hcl or did some other things um, supporting digestive capacity might not make a dent. Maybe there's more of a microbial component. Sometimes you can yeah. kind of get some interest, do some interesting what experiments. What are you doing to your microphone? Sorry, it, I hit it. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, again, if there's if there's any, like, recurring theme with this podcast, it's listen to your body. Um, right. It's, it's not going to lead you wrong with a high high frequency. Um, right. Like, you know, sometimes, sometimes we misinterpret the cues from our body and that can make it seem like your body misled you. Um, I have a video on my YouTube channel that people could check out potentially. I want, I'm going to text it to you, Amy, after we hang up, because I just want you to take in the thumbnail of this video. I worked very hard to get this thumbnail. It's a picture of me. It's from the side. And I took a bottle of supplements and I poured them into my mouth. And I have like my phone over here, snapping pictures. And I'm pouring the pills into my mouth for this. And it took me a couple shots to get it, but it was worth it. So I'm just going to send it to you so you can look at the thumbnail. But uh, the title of it, I posted it roughly a year ago, it looks like. It's titled, Will I Have to Take Enzyme Supplements Forever? And then mm. it's it's me pouring the supplements in my face. But I talked about a study in that video, and I can't, I'm not going to talk about it too much because I actually don't forget the exact statistics. But it was something to the effect of uh, they followed people who had EPI for five years. And after the five-year mark, about 50% of people were able to come off of their digestive enzymes at, by that point. Yeah. Which, on the one hand, that's actually pretty good. Like, okay, so no, I think we can definitively say that enzymes don't have to be a forever thing. But these are people who just were taking, you know, the prion or the prescription enzymes. They did nothing else. 
They right. weren't doing all the stuff that we've talked about for 90 whatever episodes in this podcast. They haven't been doing the nutrition work, the SIBO microbiome work, the candida stuff, chewing their food, mindful eating, supporting stomach acid. And if 50% of those people don't need the enzymes after about, I think it was about five years, then you sure as heck, listener, not you, Amy, you listener, sure as heck can get off of digestive enzymes in a much faster period of time, I think, compared to that group, because you're presumably doing that much more to support your digestion, support your microbiome. So I thought that that was very encouraging. Um, especially when you think about like what those people were likely doing to treat You're frozen on me. We will wrap up here. So <laughs> yeah. guys, sorry for the sorry for the abrupt ending for the episode, but the ghost apparently has spoken. I don't know. We should we should name the ghost at some point. We need to Casper the robot lady. Casper. Oh come on. We could be more creative than that. The robot lady she'll be named Barbara. Okay, that's that's amusing because my mother in law's name is Barb. So, okay, yep. so Barbara, I won't forget her name. We could do better than Casper. If the if the ghost comes back in a subsequent episode, we will come up with a more clever name than Casper. Um, I'm going to shame you a little bit publicly for that one. Uh, but Maybe Rufus? Is Rufus a good ghost name? Oh, Rufus? Oh. Sure. Okay, we, we can roll with Rufus. I okay. will say, though, I am of the age that the Casper, like, movie, who was, was it, Devin Sawa, I think, the hot guy that was Casper in, uh, in real life. So good. And like Christina Ricci, I think, was the girl. Yep. So good. I'm completely going to find that on streaming or DVD and show my daughter that this year at Halloween. One of my favorites from childhood. So oh I do gosh. appreciate the Casper reference in that regard. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you guys know the drill, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Do all the things if you're on YouTube. Like and follow and comment down below. I do try to pop in and read our comments every now and then, so they are not going completely unseen. Um, if you are on the gram, we are as well. Follow us on the Instagram. We have an IBS Freedom Podcast Instagram, but I forget what it is. I think it's <laughs> ibs.freedom.podcast. I know we haven't mentioned that in a while. I'm not going to mention the email because we haven't bothered checking that in a long time, so please do not email us. But we're on the gram, I'm on YouTube, and we will see you in the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. Take care, enjoy, enjoy your newfound pancreatic health, and go forth and get some vitamin D and some sunshine, because it's that time of year.